Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was a great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is God's word. Thanks, Anna. Evening, everybody. My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Vicar here. It's lovely to have you with us. And it really is uh, the next thrilling episode in the book of Acts as we, as we start to see the explosion of the church. Let's pray and we'll get into this fabulous little passage together. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to understand what happened in these early days so that we might not see it as, uh, as weird ancient history, but recognize the same spirit of the same Christ is alive and active in the church today. And so might we see ourselves here and be excited by the gospel we have to share and the God who is directing our lives. And for his glory we pray. Amen. Now, what does a church need if it's going to grow? What are the necessary things or what's the most necessary thing if you want to see a church grow? 
dynamic, impressive leadership. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, uh, great music, slightly more seriously. A sympathetic culture outside. If you look up uh, church growth on Amazon, you'll see just a bewildering range of books with the great secret to church growth promised within their covers. Now, the starting point for most of them tends to be our story. Hey, look, we planted a church in our living room when it was just me, my wife, and our cat. And four weeks later, there are a million people coming with their cats. It's incredible. And, and because it worked for us, it must be true for everybody in every church for all time. It's, that's basically what goes on. And so you get uh, uh, books about telling the seeker-sensitive movement is the way to go, that cell church is the way to go, uh, that a particular course like Alpha or Christianity Explored is the answer, or the homogenous unit principle, all manner of different answers to how you grow churches. Now, most of the books have got something useful to say, most. But you very, very, very rarely read a book talking about church growth, which teaches what we learn in Acts 8. Hey, look, key to it may well be opposition and suffering. The church grows in mess and difficulty. We've seen uh, historian Luke wrote Acts, and as he did, as he wrote it, his, his aim really was to, to, to show three things. That the message of the risen Lord Jesus is credible. You're not an idiot for believing it. It's good for society. It creates healthy people and healthy culture. And thirdly, it spreads really messily. Now, we saw uh, last week the kind of programmatic statement. We'll see it again and again. Acts 1 verse 8 um, declares this. But you will receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And chapter 6 to 11, which we're looking at at the moment, they chart the progress of the spread of the Jesus movement from a Jerusalem-bound kind of offshoot of Judaism to the one truly global religious belief system in that first century that spreads to the ends of the earth. And in chapters 8 to 11, you basically get a series of conversion stories of people coming to know and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And each one has a different emphasis. And in this one, in the first half of Acts 8, Luke's aim really is to show the church growing in the middle of just all sorts of total mess. There's persecution, there's corruption, there's, there's difficulty, there's struggle. As we follow the progress of the church walking through the book of Acts, we'll see that uh, the footsteps that the church leaves behind are bloodstained. But the progress is unstoppable. Now, I'll tell you why it matters that we grasp this, that the church grows in mess and in spite of opposition. There is, I'm sure you will have picked up, an increasing hostility to Bible-believing Christianity in our culture. Uh, things have moved from a kind of... Phew, indifference towards people who are just seen as laughably weird and a bit old-fashioned and odd. Oh, wow, I didn't realize anybody your age actually did the kind of Christian thing. Now it's, there's more suspicion. And actually, well, people despise those whose beliefs are seen as, well, dangerous and bigoted, what those Christians believe. What we believe is seen as a, a threat to human flourishing now. 
Now, the danger for those of us who call ourselves Christians here tonight is we convince ourselves, look, you know, the cultural conditions, they're just not really right for me to be open about my faith and to tell people about Jesus. Look, if we're honest, we all want to be liked and we all want to get ahead. And we're worried that the hostility we'll face if people find out that we are Bible-believing Christians, well, convince ourselves, well... You know, <laughs> there's no point speaking up when the cultural mood is so negative. I mean, it's not like people are going to respond well. They're just going to misunderstand what I believe or, or suddenly not like me. And why risk the aggro when there's no way it ends well? And so we don't stop believing in Jesus ourselves, but we just go quiet. We batten down the hatches to, to ride out this cultural storm. Well, through the words of Acts 8, the the Spirit of the living God is going to call us out of hiding tonight. And more than that, he's going to breathe courage into us through what happened in Acts. So you and I are confident about this gospel in our city and our day. That's what God is going to do tonight. I hope you're ready for it. Right, you've got the points on your sheet. Uh, Firstly, church growth is cross-shaped. So last week, Stephen became the first martyr in the church. He was stoned to death by this enraged mob. But it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, who you'd usually expect in a mob, just the, you know, the nasty yobbos. It's MPs, judges, and media moguls. They're the people who drag him out. This is the cultural elite basically declaring open season on Christians. And it all takes place under the hate-fueled gaze of a young leader named Saul. Look with me. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now thousands are fleeing the city in the face of Saul's savage onslaught and they are the lucky ones, the ones who manage to flee because those who don't flee are hunted down by Saul's religious police. Doors kicked in, whole families, women and children too, dragged to prison. If you'd been watching what happened that day in the roads outside Jerusalem, you'd have said this is a refugee crisis we're seeing. And humanly speaking, that is precisely what it was humanly speaking. But in the mysterious providence of God, in his sovereign plan, this is something else entirely. (laughs) This is the first step of his master plan to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 4. Those who'd been scattered resolved to go back to their old religion. Those who'd been scattered wailed and raged at God. How can you let this happen to us? Those who'd been scattered just kept quiet. Those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And did you notice that we're told specifically that the apostles were the only ones who remained in Jerusalem? This is the ordinary believers. This is you lot. This is people like us. Now, this is not 
how we would plan the first great missionary endeavor. <laughs> There's no evangelistic strategy drawn up by the apostles. You know, we'll send these people here and those people there with a map on the wall and, and particular groups who, who might culturally get on with particular places. There's no training, you know, no three years at cross-cultural Bible college for these young missionaries, these unintentional missionaries. There's no prayer letters being prepared. There's no supporting churches to fund them. Now, God is not saying we should do without those things. The second half of Acts is full of careful strategy and um, requests for prayer and organizing support from the churches. But the point here at the very beginning of the missionary movement is that the first and most important lesson the church needs to know is the only thing they really need to see the gospel spread is that they have the message of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. They have the message of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Actually, they can do without all the other stuff. There's, oh, I haven't really got time, but it interests me, so I'm going to tell you. There, throughout the Bible, especially if you look at Deuteronomy 28.64, Deuteronomy 28.64, the great curse is for God's people to be scattered out of the promised land. And again and again in the Bible, for God's people to be scattered is curse. And for the first time in Bible history, the curse, well, it ends up being the blessing of the world. God is turning things to his own advantage. Now, the Christians, and they, as they go, they've worked this out. They've learned the lessons of Stephen's speech that we saw last, year, last week. That God is the God of all peoples and all places. The days when God's people are ethnically defined and geographically located, they're gone. Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. And now God's people are to be everywhere. And God's presence is to be found in Jesus anywhere. And so through the spirit of Jesus, those refugees, they know they've got the promise of access to God wherever they are as soon as they turn to Jesus. And they know that through Jesus Christ, they've got the promise of his resurrection life. And so whatever happens to them, nothing can take their eternal inheritance. I mean, imagine having such a clear grasp of the promise of God's eternal inheritance for you that if somebody came in here tonight and shot me and drove everybody here out of your houses and you were driven out of London by a baying mob and you, you find yourself with a few possessions, traumatized, completely lost in at sea and in some Airbnb in a far-flung city, and the, who knows where. And, and the first thing you do as you check in is to tell your host about how good Jesus is. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Now, it seems unthinkable to us in our comfort that suffering persecution like this might serve to spread the gospel rather than be a disaster. But it is often, you could almost say always, the way. Uh, Tertullian in the second century famously stated, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that seems to be in the pattern throughout church history. Suffering and martyrdom go before gospel growth 
and kingdom spread. Even today, the gospel is spreading fastest in places where there is brutal oppression for faith. China, Nigeria, India, Iran. I mean, I guess the most famous example many of us will know is China. In 1949, Mao kicks out every foreign missionary and then relentlessly, brutally attacks the church. Every leader dragged off to prison. Every Bible they could find burned. And the result is the church grew by between one and a half and two million believers every single year. I guess in some ways that's just a bit far out there for us. On a more relatable level, I remember hearing a few years back from an Aussie church planter. And he was, uh, he was telling us there'd been real opposition to, to the church that they were planting from a local clergy who just didn't like Bible evangelical type Christians. And they'd held protests and they'd written some just totally untrue articles in the local press, making all sorts of allegations against this dangerous group of Bible bashing fundamentalists, as they were called. And no doubt some people believed the lies but, uh, the minister said, he said, Andrew said, said, the extraordinary thing was the number of people who said, I just wanted to hear, find out what all the fuss was about. And so all these non-Christians came along week by week just to find out what is this place that everybody's saying so dangerous and awful. And loads of them were converted. <laughs> what Satan intended to destroy the church, God used that very thing to grow the church. So look, don't be intimidated into hiding as a Christian when the Christian faith or the church or you personally face, well, not the physical persecution in this country, but insults and opposition because of what you believe. It doesn't mean God has turned his back on us and it's time to hide. Often it is the seasons of opposition that are also the seasons when God is most actively growing his church. What if I don't suffer any particular opposition or persecution myself? Well, the broader principle is simply this. The pattern of God's working is the cross. The pattern of God's working is the cross. He achieves victory through what looks like defeat. That is a theme that runs right through Scripture, pointing to the cross of Jesus. He works in mighty power through what seems weak and unimpressive. And that means God does not need you and me to be strong and confident and comfortable for him to use us to spread the kingdom of God. Quite the opposite. It's usually when we're weak, broken, and overwhelmed that we find we're of most use to God. Because then we don't get in the way of his power shining through. That's the pattern of the cross. Don't wait for ideals. Seek to speak of Jesus even now. In spite of the mockery and the struggles, suffering in your life, in spite of doubts, in spite of the feeling of inadequacy all of us have, church growth is cross-shaped. Don't be afraid. Secondly, secondly, church growth is messy. We better pick up the pace. Verse 5. Verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. We'll, hear, we'll talk more about who Philip was next week because we'll hear more about him. Now, pause, Samaria. Okay, we've got um, a couple of maps. So that's a, a map of the Mediterranean, a whole area. And then you see the top right corner that takes us into the Holy Land. And then there we go. So you see Jerusalem and then above it is Samaria. And then above that is Galilee where, where Jesus spent most of his time. 
Now, there were 12 tribes. I don't know why. I've not got six fingers. This doesn't work, does it, really? Um, stay away from the joke. Don't say the comment. The, the, um, there were 12 tribes in Israel. The northern tribes were invaded by Assyria in 722 BC. And the Assyrians, they spread them throughout their empire. And then those who were allowed to return were mixed with other people groups. And so the Israelites who returned from those 10 northern tribes, they lived in the area of Samaria. And from that time on, they weren't called by the names of their original tribes. They were just called the Samaritans. And they built their own temple, Mount Gerizim, and they had their own ways of worship. And so they were viewed as ethnically and religiously impure by the people of Judah in the south, who by this time, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin are just called the Judeans or the Jews. Hence the shock of Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan when he preached it to the Jews. And the division between uh, the Jews in the south and the Samaritans in the north is like Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland in the 80s, or Sunni and Shia Muslims in the Middle East. So it is a bold move for Philip to go and proclaim the Jewish Messiah in Samaria. Gosh, it's not safe in Jerusalem. I might be, um, well, locked in prison at best, stoned to death at worst. I better find something safe to do, like going to tell the Samaritans that they should worship a Jew. I mean, it's, it's, wow, this man has got serious courage. Here's how it goes. Verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, put yourself in Luke's sandals at this point. You're recording the history of the spread of the Jesus movement. You've, uh, you've followed Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And then for the rest of it, you've interviewed loads of eyewitnesses, as we learn in Luke 1, 1 to 4. And so you're surrounded by all these bits of parchment all over the table. And you get to Act 8, the first stage in the gospel going beyond Jerusalem, this first triumphant move into Samaria. And you've got all these interviews of these amazing people you met in Samaria when you were, when you were researching it, who were converted. There was the, um, you know, you've got the guy who was possessed by demons, who was suddenly dramatically liberated by Jesus. You've got the, the, the lady who was crippled for all her life, and at the word of the gospel, was completely healed. You've got the embittered old guy who hated, hated Jews, falling on his knees to worship the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. All these incredible stories. Which one are you going to focus in on as you tell the story? The only one he goes into any detail on is the counterfeit, the corrupt, the fake, the one who probably wasn't even converted at all. Why? Why go for Simon instead of any of these other ones that we heard about in verses 7 and 8? Now, it can't be to show that the Samaritans remain religiously dodgy, because he's been at pains to point out they received Jesus and they received the Holy Spirit. It must be this. Luke is warning us that wherever the Spirit of God is at work, Satan will be fighting back, sometimes through vicious persecution, as in Jerusalem, other times through corruption inside the church through counterfeit works, which look like the Spirit of God, but are nothing of the sort. 
Acts is remarkably frank and open about the failings of the church, and we would do well to follow their example. You don't hush up evil inside the church. You bring it out into the light so it can be seen, condemned, and dealt with. Always, always that should be the way. That's the model we see in Acts. So what happens? Um, Verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he'd amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Luke stresses the sorcery that Simon was involved in before, and that's key to what comes next. We'll read the whole of 14 to 24, and then we'll we'll comment on it in a couple of different bits. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Don't worry, we'll explain that bit later. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so everyone on whom I lay my hands may also receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so nothing you've said may happen to me. Simon's response to seeing that the Holy Spirit is poured onto people as Peter and John lay their hands on them. He wants that power. He wants to control people, to be worshipped by them, to make money from them. Now, simony is now a word that's used for those who seek position in church to gain power or money. And Peter condemns him as full of bitterness, wicked and a captive to sin. It sounds like he was never actually a genuine believer of Jesus, where before he used sorcery to control and impress and have power over people. He now just sees in the gospel a greater power even than sorcery to control, impress, and manipulate people. Satan is still at work in him, in other words. Now look, when the church is asleep, Satan tends to leave it in peace. Why would he waste his time waking up a sleeping church? But where the church is awake and active, Satan will be seeking to undermine it. And wherever the Spirit is involved bringing people to faith, Satan will be counterfeiting his work to discredit it. Uh, Two things really from this. Uh, As with all these long passages and acts, there's loads you could say, but we're just going to try and um, stick to the big main things. Firstly, beware the Spirit of Simon. Beware the Spirit of Simon. What does that mean? Well, don't promote everyone who's gifted and keen into leadership without testing their character. We're never told whether Simon repented, whether he was truly converted. And I think that's deliberate. You just don't know. Perhaps that's the point. Hey, look, 
It takes a bit longer than this to work it out. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. You can't spot that in three weeks. It takes time. It takes time. We must not be naive. There have been, to be honest, a depressing number of scandals within the church in recent years where it's emerged gifted, seemingly godly leaders were manipulative and self-serving. And they just enjoyed the power over others that ministry enabled them to have. And there will always be people like that in the church. And we will always be at risk of being blinded by their gifts to the lack of real godliness. So beware. Beware. Because this will always happen. And we're fools if we think it can't happen in a church like ours or in a network like ours. Beware the spirit of Simon, but also beware the spirit of cynicism. We'd be wrong to write off Philip's mission to Samaria because of this false convert, Simon. I don't know how many of you have seen, um, on Wednesday last week, something happened at a chapel service at a university in Asbury in Kentucky. There was a call to confession and repentance, and just loads of students started to respond, praying, singing, confessing their sins, dedicating themselves to Christ. And for 10 days, it's basically carried on almost non-stop, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students dedicating their lives to Christ, turning away from sin, declaring their, their love for the Lord Jesus. What should we make of it? I do not know. As you can imagine, the Twitter sphere will tell you exactly what to make of it. It is the beginning of the next great awakening, and America is about to be transformed. It is just rank emotionalism and complete empty nonsense, and you should dismiss it as nothing more than, than millennials getting excited about being millennials. I mean, genuinely, I've read both those responses on Twitter, and who knows where the truth lies. Acts 8 leads me to expect, if it's a genuine work of the Spirit, then many people will be wonderfully liberated from Satan's power will turn away from sin and will dedicate themselves to serving Christ. And there'll be some nonsense as Satan seeks to sow weeds among the wheat and to counterfeit what's going on. So don't be naive. Not everything that sounds exciting is of the Spirit. And don't be cynical. Don't deny the Spirit is at work just because there's some odd stuff happening. Satan always tries that. And Luke shows us here the genuine work of God, the revival that happens in Samaria. It's messy. It's an absolute mess. And yet, amazingly, God is at work in it. Uh, lastly, uh, church growth comes only through the apostolic gospel. I told you we'd think about that bit with the Holy Spirit. The strange little section in 14 to 17 where these people, they they're believers in Jesus, but they don't have the Spirit until the, the apostles lay their hands on them. Um, let's come back to it. Um, 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard Samaria and accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. I refer you to my earlier um, our earlier talk on Acts 2 when we thought about uh, do you need a second, uh, a second baptism to receive the Holy Spirit and why that's not the case. What's going on here? The point cannot be you only receive the Holy Spirit through a second blessing from an apostle, a particular second 
prayer or the hands of an apostle. Because actually the very next episode we'll look at next week with the, Euro- the Ethiopian eunuch is deliberately designed to show this guy never meets the apostles, has one encounter where he puts his trust in Christ and he leaves as a full, genuine, lacking nothing believer. So it cannot be that. It cannot be that. The point is unity, and in particular unity in truth. It comes back to the history. By doing it this way, God shows the Samaritans, you can't do what you've done for the last few hundred years and say, we don't want anything to do with Jerusalem. All the Jewish Christians there, we'll do our own version of Christianity, thanks. It teaches them, no, 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 you are reliant on the apostles. You're not separate from them. There's only one gospel, the gospel which Jesus entrusted to the apostles. There's no Jesus but that Jesus. There's no spirit but the spirit that comes through that gospel. That's what it teaches the Samaritans. And conversely, it teaches the apostles and the other Jewish believers, you're not to treat the Samaritans as second-class Christians. Because you have seen them receive the Holy Spirit just as you received the Holy Spirit. So you accept them as brothers and sisters, fully equal, and you share communion with them at the same table. They lack nothing. And so a centuries-old division is healed by the gospel. Jew and Gentile, Jew and Samaritan brought together. The same gospel, the same spirit. Now, the same thing goes in our day, actually. I've worshipped with Christians in Buenos Aires and Kigali and Paris, and culturally the churches have felt very, very different. But it was the same Jesus, the same Spirit. And I have to say, spiritually, I felt at home in each of those places because it was the same apostolic word of God that was shaping it all. The only gospel is the one in the Bible. That's the point of this episode. Saying, no, 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 you can't create your own version of Christianity. You're tied to the one which Jesus entrusted to the apostles in Jerusalem. You can't say, well, you know what, I quite like to have a version of Christianity that works in our culture uh, that allows us to pursue wealth and comfort because we like those things. Or, Or that emphasizes the traditional family over the church family. Or that ignores what the Bible says about sexual sin. You can't do any of those things. The Holy Spirit only comes through the gospel entrusted to the apostles by Jesus. There's no other gospel. And given there's no growth in the church without the Spirit, we do well to stick with the Word of God. Okay, the take-home, very simply for you and me, is don't wait for ideals. Keep going in the mess and the struggle. In our church, in your life, and in our culture. Seek to spread the gospel message of Jesus now. The church, the kingdom of God, it grows in spite of opposition, in spite of mess, in spite of Satan um, sowing his miserable, devious mess, even in amongst us. Still it grows. As I said at the start, We've seen some high-profile church scandals in the last couple of years and an increasingly virulent, and in terms of words, violent opposition towards biblical teaching in the media and in general in our culture. There's real antipathy towards church. One of the interns told me this week, they had a friend who said they wouldn't come to church, quote, because the C of E is misogynistic and homophobic. I'm not coming. 
And when people think like that, surely there's just no point. Just Let's just step back. Ride out the storm. Go quiet. Not if we've read Acts. Not if we know anything about church history. Not if we look around the world. You see, culture may be hostile, but at the individual level, our society is full of people who are confused and hurting and lost in the darkness and desperate for hope. And Jesus has the answers to the aching needs of the very people we're afraid to speak to. So look, let me tell you, if you are open about your faith this week and you seek to share it, you seek to follow the Bible and you trust in Jesus and you'd love to tell other people more about Jesus. Well, some people may well mock, insult, cancel you. It might well cost you popularity. It might even cost you career progress. But others will hear and believe and be saved for all eternity. The Spirit of the living God calls us out of hiding again tonight. He encourages us, be confident in the power of the Spirit. Be confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will grow his church. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Our Lord God, uh, we would love to be comfortable and popular, but we pray that we would care more about being faithful and a blessing. And so teach us, we pray, to love our neighbor and to be open with our faith. Move us on from our fear of how people will respond and give us confidence that even where there is opposition, even there you are at work to grow the kingdom of God. And so we pray that we would be confident people and that this week we would stand up again and this week we would seek to share the truth of Jesus again for his glory and for the good of a dying city. We pray these things. Amen.